Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the uh, pleasure of reading our scripture passage today. It's going to be in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. It'll be in your pew Bibles on page chapter 668, as well as on the screens, if you would follow along with me. Starting in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole, the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is the desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fearless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you were willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Thank you, Colton. Good morning, everyone. Um, So we're going to, as Scott prayed, uh, continue in our series expounding our vision statement from passages in the book of Isaiah. Um, And in case you were wondering... Uh, So David preached the sermon on weakness, Benjamin on woundedness, and me on waywardness. In case you're wondering, that does not mean that David is necessarily weak, Benjamin is necessarily wounded, or I am particularly wayward. Uh, But that means that these are the sermons that we got. Um, 
you might think that. If so, talk to me about it. But, <laughs> um, but I am uh, addressing this word waywardness in our vision statement. And waywardness implies going off of a set pathway. Now, in the Bible, all throughout the scriptures, we see the metaphor of walking on a pathway as what it looks like when life is as it's supposed to be. And we are made to walk in fellowship with God, our creator. This is what Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 tells us when it speaks of Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. That is what we are made for as human beings, to have fellowship with God, walking on the pathway of relationship with him, obedience to his commands, communion with him. And that metaphor is carried on throughout the biblical story. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it speaks of Noah, a righteous man, walking with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Lord tells the children of Israel as they receive his covenant and his commands that they're to teach their children to walk in his steps. In that famous Psalm 23, where it talks about God being our good shepherd, it says in verse 3 that he as our shepherd leads us into paths of righteousness. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we're given the commission as Christians to walk in in love. But waywardness is when we depart from that pathway, when we turn aside from fellowship with God, our creator, and go our own way and blaze our own trail. And Isaiah chapter one is a word to the wayward. See, the people of Israel rebelled against God and they ran from the pathway of joy and life in him. Now, I'll just say, as you probably heard and, and caught on from the reading of this scripture, if you prefer a God that is too shy or timid to tell you the truth, then you probably should skip over Isaiah chapter 1. This is a word of confrontation. Let me, let me say it another way. God loves his people too much to let them wander off without a word. And so he speaks this word of confrontation, which if we will listen, is a word of grace to us this morning. Now the reason why God must confront his people this strongly about their sin is because we don't see our sin very clearly. Now, trying to see our sin clearly is like me taking off my glasses and trying to tell you what's on that stained glass window in the back there. Uh, I have terrible vision. I'm blind in one of my eyes, and so that's not going to go over very well. I couldn't even see any of your faces, including you, Brandon. Um, that's what it's like us trying to assess our own sin. We need someone from outside of us who can see with greater breadth than us to tell us of our own sin. And so there's two parts of this word of confrontation about our sin in Isaiah chapter 1. And the first is that God tells us what our sin is. He lays bare all of the pretense and exposes for us what our sin actually is. Look with me at verses 
2 through 4. We see this most clearly here. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These verses are rich with metaphors that tell us what our sin actually is. Our sin is children spurning a loving father's tender care. We as children excommunicate ourselves from the family. Some of you might feel this acutely. Maybe you have a child who has not only walked away from the Christian faith, but walked away from the family. And you know how badly that hurts. But it goes even deeper than that. See, when Israel heard this language of them as child and God as father, they would have instantly beelined in their mind back to the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And he comes to save his people out of slavery for this beautiful land that he has won for them. He saves them. He, he does this act, great act of salvation and love for them. And yet they say, we'd rather go elsewhere. And they rebel their loving father. But not only that, this passage talks about our sin as biting the hand that feeds us. Now, I have two dogs. I love them a lot. They don't love me as much as they love food. Right? So when I feed them at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. every day, if that time comes around and I've not fed them, then they are like right beside me, bugging me until I give them food. They know the hand that feeds, and they will not bite it. They might be a little bit annoying and whine at me until I give them food, but they're not going to bite it. They know where to go for their master to give them food. God, in verse 3, is saying Israel is dumber than an ox and a donkey in her sin. She knows the hand that feeds. She's experienced that in the wilderness as she wandered. God fed her with manna. And God rescued her. And yet Israel continually bites the hand that feeds and turns away from her master. And not only that. Chapter, or verse 2 presents our sin not as a misdemeanor trial, but as a cosmic offense. You see God in verse 2 calling the heavens and the earth as prosecuting witnesses against his people in this great trial. Sin is not a misdemeanor offense. Their waywardness offended the God of the universe. The one who rules all things. It was cosmic in scale, so much so that the only witnesses that made sense to call were heaven and earth itself. And as if, as if that wasn't enough, God in verse 4 then hits them with every single adjective to describe their sin in the book. That's what our sin is. 
But also, God shows us what our sin does here in this passage. And in verses five through eight, he gives us two very clear images of what our sin does to us and the way in which it wreaks havoc on our lives and also on our souls. In verses five and six, it talks about Israel's propensity to continually come back to their sin. He says, why will you continue to rebel? It's like somebody who knows that they're going to lose a fight, and yet they continually go back into the ring every time. They get beat up and battered and bloody, and they come out of their ring. They get dragged out. They're laying on the ground. They're too stubborn to go to the doctor and get their wounds healed, and they go right back into the ring time and time and time again, and their wounds only fester and grow and bleed And then in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the way in which Israel, who was supposed to be this shining city on a hill, is left as nothing more than a dilapidated, breaking down shack in the middle of a field. And this is what happens to us when we walk outside of God's loving and good boundaries, when we turn aside in our own waywardness, we are met with briars and thorns. And we get tripped up and bruised and bloodied. And maybe you're feeling the destruction and chaos of sin and waywardness in your life right now. Maybe it's addiction or infidelity that's causing your family to fall apart, your marriage to fall apart. Maybe it's a critical spirit in you that always thinks the worst about other people and so it ruins relationships that might otherwise bring you joy in God. Or maybe it's bitterness that's eating you up from the inside, held grudges. But our sin, when we turn from the boundaries of God's good and loving pathway, wreaks havoc on wreaks havoc on our lives, and on our souls. That's what our sin does to us. And what I've kind of kept as a presupposition in the background as I've been preaching so far about this text, but I want to bring it to the forefront now, is that this passage kind of comes at our presupposition about what it means to be wayward. So when we think of the word wayward, I don't know what, how that first landed on you when you heard the vision statement, but typically, at least when I hear the word wayward, I think of the prodigal son, right? that character from Jesus's parable, the one who took his dad's wealth early, essentially wishing his father to be dead, who abandoned his family and went and squandered his wealth on all kinds of pleasure and ended up begging for food from a pigsty. I think that's our stereotypical thought process. When we think of wayward, we think of people like that. But this passage is not written to that type of wayward person. This passage is written to the household of God. This passage is written to God's people. And what God is telling us is that there is also a particularly religious way to be wayward. Look with me, if you will, at verse, uh, verses 9 and 10. He says, 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God's saying, in my restraint, I kept you from facing the full destruction that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Israel, when they read this, is probably like, all right, we're only like Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. God is likening the leaders of his people and his own people to the most wayward society, society that openly in the history of the Bible. The society that was so wayward that God sent fire from heaven to devour it. That's who God compares his people to. Now, why is that? Let's keep reading. Look with me at verse 14. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, your religious ceremonies and festivals, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You might say, but didn't God give Israel these laws and religious feasts and sacrifices? How can he hate the thing that he gave? And it's true, God did give Israel laws and sacrifices and a way to approach him in worship. But the question is, why did God give Israel those things? God gave Israel those things so that they might draw near to him with their whole heart. And yet, Israel uses these ceremonies and these festivals and these sacrifices, these religious ceremonies and duties as a way to manipulate God to get what they want, all the while their hearts are far from him. And they disregard God's clear command to help the weak and the needy. As we see later on in this passage, in verse 15 it says, their hands are full of blood. And essentially, what God is saying to the church in Judah and Jerusalem here is, I don't want to show up at your church. I'm not coming to your church. If this is what it looks like, don't expect me to show up on Sunday. God does not want to be a part of a people where religious deeds are done to try to get blessing from him, all the while his people are openly trampling his commands underfoot. And what this highlights for us is that there is both a religious and an irreligious way to be wayward. In short, we are all wayward, prone to wander from the pathway of secure fellowship with God. And if we try to pretend that that's not us, if we try to pretend that we're not wayward, if we try to say, oh, I have it all together, I'm coming to church, I'm doing this and that, I'm a part of this Bible study, without admitting our waywardness, God says, I don't want any part of that fellowship. I don't want to be a part of a church Like that. You might be playing religious games, but I will not be there. It's a hard word. So the question is if our vision statement, which we believe is drawn from the scriptures, says that wayward people 
like all of us, can enjoy the living Jesus. The question is, how? How does that happen? And I think in these first 15 verses of this passage, we see step one of how that happens. Is that we have to be honest with ourselves about our sin. That when God confronts us with our sin, when he holds the mirror up to our face, as it were, we can't look away. We have to stare right at who we are and who we have become in our own sin. We must be, to use a a kind of churchy Bible word, we have to be convicted about our sin. We have to feel the full weight of it and its effects. Pastor Ray Ortland, who has a magnificent commentary on the book of Isaiah, he summarizes this concept of conviction of sin better than I ever could. And so I'm just going to read what he says about it here in this passage. It's a little bit longer quotation. Follow along with me and listen clearly. He asks, what is conviction of sin? It is not an oppressive spirit of uncertainty or paralyzing guilt feelings. Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see, And the truth we're afraid to admit. And the guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty, our willful blindness, our favorite excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace we settle for. Conviction of sin is our escape from malaise to joy, from attending church to worship, from faking it to authenticity. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds is life. The question is, are you convicted over your own sin? Do you see your own waywardness? And does it break you? Does it floor you? Try to think about the last time in your life that you were actually floored by the weight and magnitude of what your sin is and what it does. Only when we're honest about that, before ourselves and before God, can real change take place. Can we actually begin to start to enjoy the living Jesus? And so church, I would just say too, to us corporately, are we, like the people of Israel here, using religious ceremonies and rituals and worship to hide from God and from seeing ourselves? Do you use continual Bible study as a buffer? Do you use church attendance as a form of atonement? Do you use the name of dead theologians as a shield from the living God? 
Do you drink down Bible content or worship music on your own in private so that you never have to have a silent moment alone with God where you might feel the sting of your own sin? Church, that's me. This is the easiest thing to do as a pastor. It's so easy to play church games and not do honest business with God. But we need that. We must be honest with ourselves. If we are going to enjoy the living Jesus, we have to see our sin for what it is. But not only that, we also, if we're going to, as wayward people, if we're going to enjoy the living Jesus, we have to turn from our sin and run to Jesus. We have to turn from our sin and run to Jesus. Look with me at the last five verses of this chapter, 16 through 20. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As we read those words, it might seem on the surface like God is merely prescribing different religious deeds in order to make up for other ones. Right, so you read that text and you say, well, okay, so are we just supposed to take our kind of ritualistic sacrifices and worship and just replace them with deeds of justice and mercy? Like, if we just stop doing these and start doing these, is that what God wants? And I think that's an overly simplistic reading of what this passage is talking about and what God is getting at here What God wants from us in our sin is not just behavior modification, but heart transformation. What this passage is talking about is repentance. Repentance is a biblical word that talks about turning. It's a directional word, a dispositional word. It talks about our heart turning from sin toward Jesus. Turning from our paths of waywardness that we try to construct for ourselves back on the pathway of life and joy and fellowship with God. One of my favorite things that I got to do as a youth director here um, for five and a half years that that was my job here uh, was we would do a a camping trip uh, most falls as a youth group. And the first year we did this, we went out to Ohio Pile State Park in western Pennsylvania. And the leaders and I had planned this hike, and we were going to hike to this waterfall. And we were really excited about it. We had seen pictures of it. It looked beautiful. And we start our hike, and we're like, okay, these trails aren't super well marked. This could be a little dicey. And we come to a fork in the trail. 
Now, naturally, all the other leaders wanted to turn left. And they're like, I think this is the right way to go. Me, idiot, was like, no, let's go forward. That'll be great. That'll be great. I think that's where we're supposed to go. Having done like zero research, I'm like, yeah, let's go straight. That'll be great. So we go straight for about a mile, mile and a half. We end up in like this gravel parking lot for another trailhead. And we're like, all right, I don't think that's the right way. And so we wander back around and we come back to that same juncture in the trail. And in that moment, I knew I was wrong. I knew it in my heart. But I was like, I don't want to admit it. Like, these teenagers are going to ruthlessly make fun of me for this for a long time, and so is my wife. I don't want to admit this. But I, I did, eventually. I was like, okay, I think that's the right way. And all the leaders like, finally. And so we turn, and I kid you not, we walked five to eight steps And around this clearing of trees, we looked at the waterfall. It was right there. And all we had to do was turn. And so we we ran down to it. I sat and was grumpy for like five minutes and then enjoyed the waterfall and the time with the students. And it was a great, great day. You might be asking, I have lived in my sin for so long. Or I've tried to come out of my sin and have failed so many times. Should I even bother? Should I even bother to try to turn to Jesus? Surely this does not apply to me. That if I turn from my sin, that I will be met with grace. Thomas Watson was an English uh, theologian a couple hundred years ago. And he says to this point, he says, if Jesus tells us that he will forgive sins 70 times 7, or that we ought to forgive sins 70 times 7, do we not think he will do infinitely more than that? Church, when you turn, when you admit your wrong and your sin, you don't even have to go five steps. And you're met with grace. The one who was white as snow became like scarlet. He took the punishment, the thorns and thistles of our waywardness, so that we might be righteous. And so that we, as wayward people, might enjoy the living Jesus. And so, like us at that juncture, this passage concludes with a choice for us as a church. We have a choice as to whether we want godless, dead, inauthentic, powerless religion or abundant, joyous, ruckus, vibrant religion. And that choice lies in whether we will see ourselves honestly as people desperately in need and Jesus as a sufficient Savior. That's it. That's it. It's so simple. If we turn from our sin, we'll experience the joy of the living Jesus. And think about what this means for us as a church, what this might mean 
for us. Think about this as a place where wayward people look at us and say, they're no better than I am, but they talk about this Jesus guy a lot, and he seems a lot better than I am. Think about our church as a place where we get serious about God's commands for even the most difficult parts of our lives, like serving the poor and needy, where real works of justice and mercy are done because our hearts have been transformed. Think about a church where God wants to show up on Sunday because we're real before him and we're honest before him and we're desperate for Jesus because we know our waywardness and we know he's the only way for us to be saved. Let's turn to him now in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a kind and gracious king. That when we turn to you, that we are not met with an accuser, but we're met with a savior. Lord, may that truth melt the hearts of wayward people. And may we begin as a church to experience for all of us Not only conviction of sin, but the overflowing, abundant joy of knowing you as our Savior. And so, Lord, we ask that you would humble us, and we ask that you would come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.